As you're turning to James chapter 5, just just short story. Just I, This is not going to be new information for anybody, but I might be a bit of a nerd. Um, you don't have to laugh. It's fine. Uh, I might be a bit of a nerd. And um, so one of my favorite movies from last year uh, was Knives Out. Who has seen Knives Out? Okay, so... I didn't figure many people would. I am not going to talk at all about the plot of this movie because, because I don't want to. I don't want to waste a good, a great movie on me spoiling everything for you. With that being said, uh, I kept I kept talking about how much I liked uh, Chris Evans' uh, kind of off-white cable knit sweater throughout the whole movie, and so my wife bought it for me for Christmas. So you helped. You're welcome. Uh, so she, she's just reinforcing my nerdiness. She also got me a jacket that kind of matches Chris Evans' jacket, too. It's just too hot for me to wear it right now. But I haven't been able to wear it because it's been too warm outside. But it's finally cold enough. I can, I can, I can wear my nice, my nice, comfy new cable knit sweater. So if I hug myself throughout this morning, it's, it's, it's just a cozy sweater, and I'm very happy with it. That being said, um, I, I am going to talk just a little bit about Knives Out because... Uh, I don't, again, I don't want to talk at all about the plot, but what I do want to talk about is, and if you've ever seen a trailer for it, this, this idea is not going to surprise you about the film, but, but the big overarching kind of theme, uh, well, there's, there's kind of two. There's one that families are like messed up, which that shouldn't be surprising to most of us, that families are occasionally messed up, and occasionally they fight, but, but this family in particular, the, kind, of, kind of one of the through lines of the movie, and this has nothing to do with anything other than just to say, uh, so much of the motivation of most of the characters in this movie is that they have great wealth and will go to whatever lengths they can to hold on to their own wealth. Even if it's wealth that they didn't earn, even if it's wealth that they didn't, they didn't do anything to accomplish acquiring that wealth, they have great wealth and they will fight harder to keep their wealth than they would, than they had to to even acquire it in the first place. That's, that's kind of a major through line through the whole, the whole film. And I think it's, it's, it's an important idea for us to associate ourselves with because because we may all th and again I don't I don't see any of us like pulling in in like a Rolls Royce or anything in here but but at the same time um, we live in one of the wealthiest countries in the world at one of the wealthiest times in the history of the country and I'm not saying that this is true for everybody but the idea of wealth the idea of acquiring wealth is for sure in front of all of us the, the, the idea that I want to acquire as much wealth or I want to maintain as much of my wealth um, as we can is, is constantly being put in front of us as this is what defines a good life. This is who you are. This is what you should want. This is what you should desire. And much of the time, just like, just like the family that I was talking about, our temptation is to fight as hard as we can to maintain what's ours. Fight as hard as we can to make sure that we get to keep what belongs to us, what we deserve to have, and we'll fight harder to keep it than we did to even acquire it in the first place. So that's kind of an overarching theme for what James is talking about in our passage this morning. Um, and, and here's the thing. I just want, just up front, we all are going to relate to the idea of having wealth 
differently. We are all in very different places. We all have different relationships with what it means to have stuff or, or money or, or whatever it may be. So I don't want us to read this and then if you may be thinking, I don't have anything so I can dismiss this passage. It has nothing for me. I just want to challenge you to kind of follow along because I think more than anything, this is a passage talking about our heart. This is a passage talking about our motivation, what it is that that our heart desires far more than it's about just a condemnation of those who have greedily built up lots for themselves and are holding on to it with everything that they have through clenched fists. So that being said, if you're in James chapter 5, I'm going to read verses 1 through 6. James says, Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. Does this sound just like everybody here? Does everybody like, that sounds exactly like me. I've, I've so mistreated all of my servants. No? That doesn't sound like an existence that we all are demonstrating right now. Well, here's the thing. Just to start, I think James returns to, and he, and he, kind, of, he kind of did this uh, a few weeks ago, he kind of describes what being put in front of our, a mirror to look at ourselves, to see the sin that's present in our lives, how our reaction to that um, should be. Because he describes, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Right? Before he had said, let your, let, your, let your joy turn to mourning. He wants, us, he wants us to feel the weight of the sin that's present in our lives. So, so as he's preparing to call out, in this case, people whose hearts have been greedily holding on to as much as they can and mistreating others so that they can hold on to everything that they've acquired, he's saying, when you are faced with your sin... And this is true for any of us. This is true for anything that you may face in your life that you find over time is sin that's present in your life. What should your reaction be to that? Weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. You should should feel the weight of that sin. You should be sorrowful over the sin that is present in your life. It should hurt you to know that you have offended your Creator, that you have offended Almighty Holy God. When we're, when we're faced with the hypocrisy that's present in our lives, where we say, I'm good, or I've got this, or I love Jesus and I'm pursuing Him, and then somebody says, but what about this? It should, it should hurt us. Not, not to the point that we become unable to move, or that we, that we reject everything Jesus and, 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 and go off and pursue those things, but, but we should feel the weight of our sin. We should be broken over our sin. And that's part of what Jesus uses to bring us back to repentance, to bring us back to Him. I, I'm... I'm real bad about this whenever I'm in like a tense situation. Any, any tense situation, I start like either cutting jokes or laughing because I, I hate tension. 
Like, I try to immediately start relieving the tension. I'll either start laughing, which is, which is super not helpful, or I'll start telling jokes, which is, again, super not helpful. But, but I do that because, because I hate tension. And sometimes when, when we're in a, a situation where we're being presented with a sin that's present in our lives, or we're having to be the one who's presenting a sin that's present in somebody else's life to somebody else, and, and, and it begins to hit them in this way that God's describing, where they're broken over their sin, they're saddened, they're hurt, they're, they're crying or whatever. He's not saying, so immediately smooth it over so that they don't feel those things. I mean, we, we tend to, as a people, not want to make other people feel the things that, like all the emotions or the weight of the things that they're facing. But I think one of the things that we can gather from James is that, that our, sh- our sin should affect us in some sort of like tangible, emotional, weighty way. And I think it's okay for us to, to let, let each other sit in the sadness that comes with understanding of where we are in relation to God at the moment. And so, and so I, I think that this language that he's using, while, while he's more using it to set up the bigger picture of what he's saying, I think there's a lot of truth for us here as the church, that, that the way that we relate to facing sin in our lives is important and that we should feel the weight of that. So then James is going to get into kind of the meat of what he's discussing, which is, which is this desire to hold on to wealth. And he, and, he, and he starts to talk to him about all of these things that, have, that they've acquired. And he's saying, none of these things are going to matter. Your, your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded. He starts speaking about how these things that we tend to acquire throughout the course of our life, in the end, they just they go away. They fall apart. They, they wither. They break. They corrode. They... I mean, everybody, this isn't, surely this isn't just me, has had one point or another had like that closet with the stuff. Does everybody know what I mean? The closet with the stuff where you stack the things and then you're like, what was in that, that box? I don't know. I put it in there when I moved into the house 10 years ago and I haven't opened it since. What is that? It's stuff that we all have. I mean, if you've ever seen my car prior to cleaning. Usually it's just my car acquires stuff over time. There's, I, I literally have, there's a box in the trunk of my car right now of stuff that I don't, I don't even know what all's in there, but I've got it. I've got the stuff. But, but, we, but we acquire these things and then they end up in place. I mean, it's like none of it matters. It might as well just be thrown away. It might, as well, it might as well just be taken away because, because the, we, 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 we have all the stuff that we just over time start to add and we add and we add and we don't get rid of or we don't, we don't have a reason for adding more because we're already at max capacity in our lives anyways. We already have all the things that we may need, but yet we still continue to acquire. And what, and what James begins to say is all of that stuff that you're so happy about, in the end, it's just going to go away. It's just going to disappear. And this reminded me of a verse that we studied several years ago here when we did our study through the book of Hebrews. This is Hebrews chapter 12, verse 26 through 29. It says, At that time, his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised yet once more, I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken. That is, the things that have been made, in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. 
Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. For our God is a consuming fire. What the author of Hebrews is trying to say here is, at some point, God's basically just going to take all of His creation and He's just going to start shaking it. Kind of like an Etch-A-Sketch when you're done, right? Like you just you shake it and it's all gone. All that work that you took to try to figure out how to get a diagonal line on the Etch-A-Sketch, which took you way longer than was necessary, right? All that, it's just going to shake and then it's gone. And what, and what the author of Hebrews is saying and what James is saying is these things that are present in our lives. And I keep talking kind of ambiguously about these things because, again, we all relate to wealth and things and possessions and money and all of that differently. We all have a different perspective on what that looks like in our lives. So I want us to, as we're going through this, to be thinking about what are the things in my life that, that the author of Hebrews is talking about or that James is talking about when he's saying the things that that aren't going to last forever. The things that God's going to come along and when He shakes the heavens and the earth, when He says, I'm, I'm, I'm getting rid of everything that doesn't matter, right? The things that aren't shaken, the things that remain are the things of God, the things, the things where we are, we are bringing glory to Him and we are connected to Him. So that we can bring to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. Because, because he's done what he said he would do. He's taken away all of everything else that doesn't matter. So the first thing that I think James is really trying to communicate to us is that holding on to earthly things does not matter in the long run. And again, we all are going to relate to this differently. We all have different things. What, what, I hope that you're thinking right now, what is it in my life, or is there anything in my life currently that I am holding on to that I do not need, that is not good for me, or that, that is not bringing glory to God? Is there something... And again, I'm not saying you can't... I don't want to say... I'm not trying to make a point this morning that, that we should all be impoverished and have absolutely nothing. That's the only way that we can be close to God. I don't believe that is true. I think God gives us good things. I think God gives us gives us nice things that we can, we can enjoy for a time. But if those things become more valuable to us than God, that is when they become sin. So I want you to be introspective. I want you to be looking at yourself and saying, what is there anything in my life that I'm holding on to harder than I am holding on to the truth of the gospel? Anything that I'm holding on to harder than my pursuit of righteousness, of holiness? Anything that I'm unwilling to let go of for the sake of pursuing my calling to follow Jesus. That's what I'm trying to get at. Those earthly things won't matter in the long run, so, so we should not value them the same that we do the things of God. The second thing that I think James is really trying to make a point of, because he speaks for a bit about the way that these, these wealthy landowners or wealthy businessmen, we kind of talked about wealthy businessmen a bit last week when they were talking in their pride about how much money they were going to go off and go make, right? At the end of chapter 4. But, but he speaks to the way that they treat the people who serve under them. Behold the, labors of the, behold the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud are crying out against you. But here's the part that I think is, is, is key. 
and the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. God values these people who are being treated so poorly by those who have the things, who have the stuff. And here's, here's the idea. That, that, that God values all of his creation, that all of humanity has been made in the image of God and have, have, have built in, like baked in the way that they were created, value, dignity, worth, importance in the eyes of God. And, and, and these, these wealthy landowners or businessmen, whatever it is, are treating people as if they don't matter because they want to make sure that the stuff that they have is maintained. I mean, this has been true from the very beginning. Genesis 1.27. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them, right? This idea that he created us to be valuable, to be like God. And James is calling out these wealthy people at this point and saying, you are not treating the rest of God's valued creation as if they have value. You are valuing only yourself. And I think it's so key, right, that in the end of verse 4, it says, the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. Like, God hears them. God sees them. And you may find yourself associating with, with, that, with that group of people, and you may be saying, I sometimes feel like I am being mistreated. I am being forgotten. I am being taken advantage of by the world or by an employer or by somebody who holds some authority over you. And to you, I would say, cry out to God and He hears your cries. And He values you. And we, as the church, should model this above everything else in our society. Like We should get this better than everything else. We should value everyone that we come into contact with in a way that says, I believe that God made you. I believe that you are important. I believe that you are valuable. And that should be who we are as the people of God before anything else. God hears the cries of the downtrodden, and so should we as the church. We should hear the cries, and we should respond in a way that says, we see your value even though you may be treated often as if you have none. In verse 6, he then says, you've condemned and murdered the righteous person. Again, speaking of these people who are being taken advantage of. He does not resist you. It says, it says the righteous person there. There could be a couple of meanings to that. It could, mean, it could mean those who are saved are being taken advantage of. But I think more likely what the language is really trying to imply is people who are innocent. People who haven't taken advantage of other people. People who aren't in a place where they can, you know, uh, use their authority or their wealth to, to take advantage of other people, right? What, what he's saying is, you've been taking advantage of these innocent people, and they don't even fight back against you. They, they accept it. They don't, they, don't, they don't lead some sort of revolution. They don't lead some sort of resistance. And I think that speaks to sometimes a, a healthy attitude um, that, that we should, and the church, demonstrate where, I mean, if, even if we are being you know, thought less of or whatever. I mean, Matthew chapter 5, verse 38, starting verse 38 says, You've heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, but I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil, but if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you to take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. 
And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to those who beg from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. I mean, we see this kind of, we see these, this distinction between those who are, who are in authority that are taking advantage of those that they can and those who are, who are being taken advantage of. And we see kind of the contrast in the way that they're being called to live their lives. It's, 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 it's a don't take advantage, don't treat people like they are not valued. And if you are being taken advantage of, if you are not being valued, do so in a way that is glorifying to God. If you're being taken advantage of, do so in a way that shows unnatural patience, I guess, in the face of some of that, in a way that we would not tend to expect to live. I threw this verse in there as well because I think it begins to speak to what I think the right heart would be. The, the, the opposite, the, the, the redeemed heart of the person who had the great wealth. If somebody asks you for, for your tunic, give them your cloak as well. If somebody asks you to do this, go the extra mile to help them. If somebody asks you for help, don't refuse one who would borrow. Like these ideas, this is more beginning to transition to what I think the heart is that James would desire that the church would have. This, this idea of, because again, I don't want to make some sort of case um, that, I'm going to use really nerdy theological terms that I'm going to translate, that, that, that poverty equals piety. I don't want to set up this idea that just having very little makes us more right with God. Because I don't think that's the point that he's saying, even though I'm about to read a verse that can be taken that way. I'm not trying to make that point. But I think the point is, with what you have, are you living in such a way that is glorifying to God and valuing the importance of the lives of those who are around you? Are you seeing others as more important than yourselves? Are you, are you valuing the needs of those that are around you? Or are you trying to make sure that you maintain your level of safety, security, comfort, whatever it may be, in whatever way? This whole, this whole section in James, all week as I was studying, just kept bringing me back to this one story. This, there's this story where um, Jesus is out teaching with his disciples, and he's instructing different people in various ways. And, and this one guy comes up to him and says... You know, Jesus, what is it that I have to do to be saved? What is it that I have to do to, like, to like really cement my, my legacy and my, my position in life with God? And he says, well, I mean, you've got you to gotta keep all the Ten Commandments. He says, oh, no problem. I, I've done that since I was a kid. I've, I've behaved very well. I'm a, I'm a righteous guy. He says, good. Well, then you only lack one thing. Go sell everything that you have and then come and follow me. And the guy says... I'll get back to you on that. And he goes away, he says he goes away sad because he was a man of great wealth, right? The last thing that Jesus required from him was everything. And it sets up this passage in Matthew chapter 19. It leads right into this following conversation. I'm starting in verse 23. And Jesus said to his disciples, Truly, I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished, saying, Who then can be saved? But Jesus looked at them and said, 
With man, it is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. Then Peter said in reply, See, we've left everything and followed you. What then will we have? Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or fathers or mother or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. Again, I'm not trying to turn this into some sort of poverty gospel kind of sermon because I don't think that's the point of what Jesus is trying to say here. So let's look back at what I think the key phrase is. When the disciples ask the question, if this is what the, the standard is to, to be saved, this is what it takes, giving, giving away all of our wealth, who's going to be saved? Nobody's going to want to go for that. They're like, Jesus, maybe you should check your messaging because I don't know that this is the kind of thing that people are going to want to follow. Nobody's going to like hearing this teaching. And what is his response? Who then can be saved? He says, he says with man it is impossible but with God, all things are possible. And here's, here's the point that I want to make. And this is why I'm not saying that what Jesus is saying is you absolutely have to sell every single thing you have and every single person has to be absolutely broke. That's how you become like Jesus. He might call you to that, by the way. I'm not saying that he won't. That, that's a distinct possibility. But what does he say? He says, it's more difficult for a camel to go through the eye of a needle... Everybody got that mental picture? Camel, needle, right? Seems really difficult. Like, but what he, so they're saying, so that sounds impossible. He's saying, it's not impossible. With man, it's impossible. But with God, all things are possible. And I think that works, that works a couple of ways. One it is that he can change our hearts to relieve us of the, the, the difficulty of desiring to hold on to our great wealth or the things that we've acquired. He, he can save us from, from ourselves, from our hearts desiring to maintain selfishly these things that we have or these things that we want or these things that society says you will have a complete and happy life if only you have insert thing here. So, so he can change our hearts. So when they're saying nobody's going to want that Jesus, he's saying, well, with God, he can change our desires. He can change our wants. He can change the things that we seek. So that's not a big deal for me. He's saying, I can change, we, we, we can see their hearts changed. So, so if you're saying, that sounds impossible, I could never want to give up X, Y, Z, whatever the thing is, right? He's saying, no, 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 I, I can, we can change hearts. Like with God, that is not an impossibility. But I also think one of the things that he's saying is he can, he can also redeem those who have great wealth and change their desires for how to use the wealth that he has given them. Because he, he's saying, he doesn't say, he doesn't say it's impossible for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. He just said it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. Right? And I think, I think what he's trying to say is all of this, from either direction, however you look at it, seems like something that we can't manufacture on our own. We can't fix this on our own because we are not God. We cannot overcome the impossible. So it may mean that he's going to call some of us to live lives 
where we have to walk away from wealth that He's given to us, or He may call us to a life where we will never acquire great wealth, or it may, he may be that He calls us to a life where He gives us lots of wealth that we might be generous with the wealth that He gives us. I don't know what your existence is, but what I do know is our hope should not be in the what we have in whatever situation we find ourselves in. Our identity shouldn't be wrapped up in what we own, what we wear, the money that we have, the money that we make, the money that we... We shouldn't shouldn't be dominated by our desire to have this kind of life. Our lives should be identified by our belief and our trust and our hope in Christ that He is able to sustain us in whatever life it is that He has given us. Either way, whatever life it is that he is calling us to, whatever our life looks like. Because again, like I said, we all relate to this subject differently. I would have taught this sermon very differently if I was in many different churches. But here, more than anywhere else, I think we have this unique, diverse set of experiences with with how we relate to this subject specifically. And so I think it's worth saying that God is able to work in everybody's life no matter what the situation is that you find yourself in. Just, just like he hears the cries of those laborers, no one person in here is not heard by God if we cry out to him in whatever situation we find ourselves in. But either way, whatever your situation is, our attention must necessarily be drawn away from what we have or what we don't have, and our focus should be solely on Christ and the work that He did on our behalf. Christ, who who did not think equality with God a thing to be held on to, but instead humbled Himself, taking on the form of man. Humbling Himself to the point of death, even death on a cross, right? This idea that, that Jesus, because like, like he said in Matthew 19, many who are first will be last and the last first. Jesus is first. Jesus is God. Jesus is sitting in heaven, the Son of God, and allowed himself to be humbled by becoming like us and submitting himself to a life of Poverty and rejection and pain. He allowed himself to become last, that he might be raised again so that he could be glorified in heaven again, taken from last back to first. Accomplishing this great work which can take those of us who humble ourselves to the point of realizing that we cannot save ourselves The things that we have cannot save us. We cannot keep ourselves safe by using the the resources that are around us. That is not our hope. Our hope is not in the things of the earth, the things that when God shakes His creation go away. Those things cannot save us, cannot sustain us. He calls us to humility. He calls us to lastness, right? This idea of seeing ourselves as incapable of saving ourselves and humbling ourselves and realizing that our only hope is in the completed work of Jesus, not in the the work that we've done to acquire the things that we have or the work that, that we've done to maintain some form of safety or security or comfort. Our hope is in what Christ has done for us. 
So let's pray. And so God, my prayer this morning is that, again, no matter how it is that we relate to this idea of, of wealth and how to, how to maintain or hold on to our wealth or the desires that we have to treat people in a certain way so that we can acquire or maintain our wealth or whatever, that, that, you, would, that you would soften our heart and, and, and take our attention away from that and instead place it on your son and the great work that he did so that we could be saved and added to your family. God, it is a challenge to say that we should look at our lives and ask ourselves, what of it does not matter? But God, I think that is what what James is doing here, and I think that's what what you would have us do this morning, is to look at our, our hearts and say, what in our hearts, what in our lives right now are we desiring more than you? Are we fighting to maintain more than putting our hope and our faith and our trust in you. And so God, I pray that you would reveal those areas of our lives where, where like, you, like you described, we should, we should weep and howl. We should feel the weight of our sin. We should feel the pain that comes with knowing that we have have broken faith with the holy God of creation. That you would you would put our lives in, before us that we could see what areas of our lives we are living where we're saying that's still for me, that's still for me. I want to hold on to that where we where we walk away sad because we don't want to give up the thing that we've been asked to give up. But God, you're calling for our whole lives. You created us for you. You created us for your glory to be used by you. And God, I pray that you would give us hearts that selflessly turn everything we have over to you and say, God, this is all yours. Do with it what you will. God, I pray that for those in here who may be unsaved, who do not, maybe, maybe, maybe you're hearing this for the first time and you're like, this, is, this makes no sense. I hope that you would not hear this as a, you got to sell everything so that God will like you, but rather that, that Christ already gave everything so that you could be welcomed into his family. And my prayer now is, God, that you, for those who maybe are unsaved, that you would, you would change their hearts, change their desires, because that seems impossible, but, but with you, nothing is impossible. And I pray that you would work that impossible and draw new people into the family of God. And for the rest of us, God, that you would work the impossible, that you would change our desires and our motivations to align with giving everything to you. Everything, everything is for you to be used by you for your glory. God, that our lives would just be a blank check that you can do with what you will. We thank you for 
the great sacrifice, the willingness to set aside everything, to give everything up that, that your son made so that we could be saved. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. Amen.